This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture, brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Well, I'm going to shift gears a little bit, Stan, by talking about your own expertise, and that is um, you're a professor of psychology and you've worked and written in this area. And what do you regard as some of the more important studies that have been done that that uh, that reflect the research and what's going on uh, with homosexuality and what, what can we say about it? I might say a quick word about how I got involved in this at all, Daryl. Okay. Uh, it was just almost an accident in my graduate training that I got some training in human sexuality. And so I sort of, when I arrived at Wheaton College, I kind of drew the short straw as the only person who had any graduate training in it to, oh. to teach, teach a course for our master's program in sexuality. And as I got and get more and more engaged with the primary literature, you oftentimes really learn something when you teach it. And uh, I got engaged in that primary literature, and I began to see this ideological slant that was growing even then in the 1970s to use scientific research for uh, for ideological purposes. And the the first per- place I saw it was in the commendations of cohabitation and and the uh, the sort of strident stances that people would take that had no grounding in the actual research literature that cohabitation was good for people. Mm-hmm. And I looked into that and found that essentially every study that's ever been done on cohabitation shows that cohabitation is worse for people, that you have higher breakup rates and higher abuse rates and higher sexual infidelity rates mm. and, and on and on and on. And then I got interested in the way that in the same way same-sex uh, relationships and bisexuality were being pushed. And, uh, and what I found coming at the church was several really crucial arguments where science was being used as a bludgeon to move the church off its traditional moral teaching. So you ask, you know, what are some of the most important findings? I think um, uh, two, two major things come to mind. One is the argument that, um, that homosexuality is a natural biological condition and therefore it can't have any moral consequences. And the other is the argument that it's impossible to, for sexual orientation to change. And uh, just to pick uh, two, two studies uh, out, of, out of the many, um, in terms of uh, homosexuality being genetic, the best recent study published in 2010 was a study from the, the, uh, the twin registry, the identical twin registry for the nation of Sweden, hmm. and they found uh, 71 identical twin pairs. These are genetically identical twin pairs, usually raised together. They found 71 twin pairs where one of the identical twins was uh, – was was uh, fit the category of being gay, and what they actually found was that in only seven of the seventy-one pairs was the second identical twin gay. Now, this when you when you uh, when you uh, equate sexual orientation with race and say this sexual orientation is a civil rights issue because it's just like skin color, it's just like race. Well, one hundred percent of those identical twins are the exact same race, mm-hmm. but only ten percent of the twin pairs were actually matched for their sexual orientation, and so so something's very very wrong with that with that analogy. We actually don't know what causes homosexuality, but there's a sense in which does it make any difference from the moral perspective? Many many critics of Christianity say something can only be moral if if you had the choice in framing it. But the fundamental Christian message about sin is we didn't ask for this. We're we're born in original sin. Mm-hmm. So so the idea that it has to be voluntary doesn't make any sense from the moral perspective that uh, that Christianity would hold up. 
similarly, the issue about change, um, the argument is often made that, that uh, change is impossible and therefore you can't have moral objections to homosexuality because God would not object to that which a person cannot change. And uh, in 1 Corinthians 6, it talks about, uh, you know, the following people will not inherit the kingdom of God and, and homosexual persons, homosexual actors are on that list and it says, such were some of you. Well. I think it's I think it's naive for Christians to assume that that those people were necessarily converted instantaneously from homosexuals to heterosexuals. Mm-hmm. To the opposite of sexual immorality is not heterosexuality. The opposite of sexual immorality is morality. It's chastity. It's it's purity. And so I think that what that passage teaches us is that that it is possible for people to be freed from a bondage to that this kind of sin. And this is one area where I've actually added a, an, an original scientific contribution. Uh, there was there was dozens of studies saying that homosexuality can sometimes change that were published between the 1940s and the 1970s. But as the as the uh, atmosphere of the mental health establishment changed during that time, there's actually been only three major studies that have been published in peer-reviewed journals since 1981. And uh, one of them was by a psychiatrist named uh, E. Manzel Patterson uh, that was published in 81. It's the second one was uh, Robert Spitzer's study in 2003. And the third one was the one that Mark Yarhouse and I just published in 2010 in the Journal of Sex and Marital Therapy. And we actually did what, what no other researchers have done before, and that is we followed a group of people longitudinally over time. Time, over a six-year period, hmm. and uh, we found that some people uh, went back to the gay lifestyle after trying to change through the uh, group Exodus, but we also found that some people uh, achieved and maintained stable chastity in singleness, and they reported that this was satisfying, that they considered this to be a success, that they did not identify their their primary uh, sort of status in life as being gay, but the, rather they identified their primary status in life as being Christian. And But there was there was also a group of people who had moved from being primary, primarily homosexual to being able to function heterosexually. And so that does appear to be possible for some. I don't have any reason to think that that's possible for everybody. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the Christian faith requires that. The Christian faith requires purity, not, not conversion to heterosexuality. In, in answering your question, Michael, do you have anything you want to add as you listen to this? Yeah. First, of course, uh, great thanks, Stan, to you and Mark for the studies you've done for the book and for the article. I've often pointed to it and said, here, you've got a longitudinal study documenting things. My own uh, late brother-in-law came out of homosexuality, but it wasn't even an intent. And then over a period of years, noticed he was attracted to women and ended up marrying my sister-in-law. And, and the two of them lived a normal life thereafter until he passed away. The, uh, the, the fact is that there's so much pressure in the scientific academic realm to come against the idea that change is possible. The classic example, uh, Professor Robert Spitzer, Columbia University, a pioneer that helped to depathologize homosexuality in the APA in 1973. Some years later, does a study wondering, is it possible people can change? He interviews them, does standard interviews. He, he's written several hundred peer-reviewed scholarly articles. He knows how to do his research. And he, he listened to what the people said and believed that, as others do on the other side and wrote his study saying, yes, some people who are strongly motivated can change. He got blasted, vilified for it. He's now, what, about 80 years old with Parkinson's? Well, he recently wanted to retract the study. 
And the journal letter just said, you can't retract it. There's no error in the study. There, we don't retract it. Well, he's now renouncing it, basically saying, look, I made the error of believing what the people said. Uh, look, he's an older man. He, he's been a pioneer for the underdog. In his view, his study was being misused by the religious right and so on. But he got vilified the day the study came out, vilified. He was a man that was a pioneer for, for gay activism. We see it now with the Regnerist study. Uh, about kids who are who are raised by parents who are involved in same-sex relationships not having as good an outcome on average as those who are raised uh, by by heterosexual parents he's been blasted it calls to investigate him and and uh, why the outcry well I, I have a chapter in my book a queer thing happened to america listing what major researchers and 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 psychiatrists and psychologists say about the suppression of evidence from the other side. When people say, how come we don't hear more about this? People often risk their professional careers. If Stan wasn't at a friendly place like Wheaton to, to put out a study like this, could have cost him his career or, or any respect that would come with it. And even on the twin study, and, and these have been done in quite a few nations now, some with, with large uh, databases, very large databases where they've, they've looked at things with twins, there's a nasty little secret that even among those that come out, two identical twins that were raised in the same household that are both gay, often there's a relationship that evolved between them. There's often incest involved, and that can further shape the outcome. But the bottom line is it's, it's not genetic. And absolutely, our firm would stand said, even if it was, here's the simple soundbite answer for your Christian on the street. Maybe you were born that way. I don't think so. But even if you were, Jesus said you must be born again. It's a simple <laughs> truth. It's that basic. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Well, there, there, now there was something going on uh, with this uh, discussion that I think is important. Uh, Stan, you used the phrase early on in your reply about the research where you used the phrase homosexual actor. And I think that that phrase is an important phrase to kind of get our, our hands around in terms of what is meant. There is, uh, there is the issue of identity that is wrapped up in, in this question and how it's often posed, but then there's also the issue of, uh, of acting out or following through on either that perception of, the, of what one's identity is or how one thinks about identity in relationship to this question. I think this is a huge area of, of conversation, particularly when you begin to interact with someone who is homosexual and who says, I am a homosexual. They're using that as their identity. This is who, who they think about themselves in terms of who they are. What what help or advice would you give to us in, in interacting with someone whose identity is wrapped up in their in their sexual in their sexual orientation? 
You know, I think from a scriptural perspective, it's important to point out that most of the passages that that condemn homosexual uh, immorality are focused on behavior. They say, you know, don't do the don't do this thing. But it's not the case that scripture doesn't care about our the inclinations of our heart or the direction of our desires. I think that the the major message of Romans one is not that uh, not that God sort of deliberately gives these destru- destructive impulses to someone, but rather that these are symptoms of our human brokenness, symptoms of our human rebelliousness. And that, you know, Christ himself says, out of the heart pour these, these immoral things. And so our, our desires are not morally indifferent, but, they, but God does give us control of our actions. And, and uh, the, you and I were talking before we started taping that, um, that there's this issue of, of uh, the, today that identity is viewed as something that you simply receive. It's something you sort of peel the onion, find out what's underneath, and suddenly you know what you are. And mm-hmm. what you find there is what you embrace. That You, you peel the onion and you embrace that's what's at the core. But I think the fundamental Christian message is really something f- quite different from that. It is that God holds before us the person that we ought to be. He's willing to redeem us from what we are and put us on a journey that we will never complete in this life, but rather that we will move towards ever closer the image of what He wants us to be, and that will be cl- completed in, in eternity. And as we deal with the secular community, we are dealing with a situation where um, the idea of identity has become the fundamental given. And so uh, it, we do have to separate behavior and attractions and identity, and they're really not the same. They emerge very differently in the surveys. You can even, even in the surveys in the secular scientific world, people respond very differently if you ask, have you acted on your sexual, on, have you acted homosexually? Have you, do you have homosexual or same-sex desires? And do you, do you embrace same-sex identity? And, and uh, there's seven, eight, nine, ten percent of the population experiences some form of same-sex desires, and yet a smaller percentage, probably three to four percent, ever engage in in same-sex behavior, and then in terms of embracing the identity, it's it's smaller yet. But the gay activist community, as Michael is saying, wants to treat that that sexual identity is a is an sort of an un, uh, un, undissolvable entity. It's something that you, if a person says this is my identity, that can't be questioned. But I think again, or going back to Michael's earlier definition of the gospel, where we're called into dying to self and becoming alive in Christ. Uh, to become alive in Christ is to say, I want to lay how I even construe myself before uh, before God, and I want to have a uh, 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 the kind of relationship with God where He is calling the shots, where <laughs> where uh, where He is shaping my identity, and I don't I don't define myself; God defines me. And so the key idea. Here here is that the core identity becomes uh, the, the the sense of being a Christian and wanting to live out the way God has intended for human life to be lived and uh, the way he's designed it, uh, in contrast to simply following through on whatever desires I might have. That's right. And uh, I, th- I think this is an area, again, where the evangelical church can, can fail us sometimes because with our emphasis on defending the family, we present that the only form of fullness that God wants for you is the, the nuclear family. So you need to experience that conversion and uh, and quickly make it uh, make it over to the heterosexual side and so forth and so on. And that's a wonderful blessing when it happens, but it's not the only path. So single people are ca- capable of growth in uh, in Christ likeness, and uh, and so that that is a great gift. And the difficulties we inc- that we experience along the road are are part of the challenge, part of the shaping process. Those difficulties can be used by God just as powerfully as the the, the things that are seemingly uh, blessed. Um, Michael mentioned uh, Robert Spitz. 
Spitzer being diagnosed with Parkinson's is odd. He was the last person to publish a major study. I was more recently published it, and I have Parkinson's disease. <laughs> and so I'm, you know, what I'm experiencing is in some increasing complexity of my life, some difficulty in my life. But it's amazing the way that God uses these difficulties to shape and mold us and, and that we can experience in brokenness a, a closeness with Christ that is, is, uh, is part of what it means to be shaped in His image. And so uh, when, we, when we think about, you know, sometimes when we get in this discussion, it's like homosexuality is kind of in this special category and they're different than everybody else and it's us and them and those kinds of things. But really what I'm hearing you say is we all struggle in the area of sexuality. It may not be in in this particular area, but we all have issues where where we're called upon to respond differently than the way uh, maybe desires that seem to pop up innately within us uh, surface. That's right, and that and that this is part of this is part of of the walk of the commitment of being uh, committed to where it is God is taking uh, and trying to take all of us. And, and so, for some, it may involve homosexuality; for others, it may involve issues related to lust. For those for single people, it's disciplining their sexuality until they come into marriage. Yeah. I mean, there. this works in a variety of realms, realms in a variety of ways and touches everybody. No one is excluded from the kind of, I'm going to use the word, orientation to God that is designed to trump or transcend uh, other orientations we may have. That's right. You know, a great example, Daryl, is, is I'll, I'll never forget my conversation with the first person I ever met who had experienced significant transformation from, the, from living the homosexual lifestyle into one of the more dramatic sort of healings and reorientations I've ever seen, and I'll call this guy Fred. But at the time I met him, he'd been married for 13 years, had five children, and was a loving father and, mm. and doing great. But he had been deeply immersed in the gay community from age 14 for 13 years until he was 27. When when he uh, heard the gospel, responded in a radical and distinct way, God called him into marriage. And I'll, I'll still remember the part of the conversation where I said to him, so Fred, so you have, you have switched from being a homosexual to being a normal heterosexual? And he said, absolutely not. And I was rather I was rather shocked by his response. I said, "What do you mean you're not a normal heterosexual?" He said, "To be a normal heterosexual male is to experience sort of promiscuous impulses that are sort of the bane of your existence. It's to experience lust and be drawn in many directions." He said, "God has given me a great gift." He said, "I still struggle with homosexual impulses, but God has given me sexual desire for my wife alone among among women." And he said, "I'd much rather have I'd much rather carry this gift <laughs> than uh, than to struggle with the way that many heterosexuals struggle." And so, yes, yeah, so. So all of our sexual desires are broken. Our sexuality is broken. Our sexuality is, is tied into our desire for for human connection, for bonding, and uh, and so there's all kinds of of disabilities, if you will, that are built into that. We're all on this journey of learning how to love more, how to give more. For those of us who are married, we're learning what it means to be united in one flesh. We're le- learning what it takes to to die to self and offer up in submissiveness to the other the gift of the the gift of the self to the other. And that's a that's a great challenge, but it's really really a, 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 something that requires a lot of difficulty and challenge along the way. Michael, we're talking about, of course, how orientation yes. relates and how Christian orientation, if I can use that phrase since orientation is a big word, uh, can transcend uh, other types of orientation or identities that we may possess or feel that we have. Um, what have you uh, seen in, in on this question? Yeah, uh, sorry I dropped out there for a moment, not sure what happened. I heard a former lesbian say this, and it ties in with Stan's comments about the opposite of of immorality is morality. She said, God never said, be thou heterosexual, because I, the Lord thy God, am heterosexual, but be thou holy, 
because I'm the Lord thy God, I'm holy. So we understand again that that is the goal, that's what we're all striving after, which is why when we recognize the behavior issues, I always tell pastors and leaders, don't say homosexuality is a sin. Say homosexual practice is a sin, lest you condemn the person for having desires or thoughts or impulses. Uh, also, the, today's society, and especially the gay community, wants a Jesus who practices what I call affirmational inclusion. He accepts me as I am and affirms me for who I am. I say that Jesus practices transformational inclusion. He receives us as we are and transforms us into his image. What, what we will hear from the homosexual community, and it's something we need to be challenged by, is this. Look, it's one thing for you to be chased as a single person because you know there's the potential for marriage. But here, I'm 18 years old. I'm gay. It's who I've always been. I'm going to come to Jesus in your church, and that means I'm going to have to be alone until I die at the age of 88. That's your gospel. What we have to say again is first... I yield my entire life to Jesus without condition. Whatever he wants, whatever he desires, by life or by death, that's a normal New Testament commitment. And if he calls me to be single or if he gives me the gift to be married, I'm his disciple anyway. But the church needs to really recognize the struggle and get alongside of people, especially some who've come out of a very promiscuous lifestyle and will have more falls than they'll have success for a little while. That's where the body just has to say, hey, we love you. We're with you. We're not ostracizing you. And we're not looking at you any differently. But, but I've asked this, and I've never once gotten an answer in dialogue and interaction with gay activists. I am absolutely not comparing your average gay man or woman to a pedophile. I'm not making the association. I'm not putting them in the same group. But the, the research on pedophilia would also say no one chooses it. I mean, who in their right mind would choose something like that? The research would often indicate it's, it's the same as left-handedness. The, the very same arguments that are used to, to sanction homosexual practice are often used to sanction pedophilia. What do we tell someone who has those horrific perverse desires? There's no outlet for them. We're sorry. We know you're struggling, but this is absolutely contrary to everything that is best for you and for God and for society and for other children. There are certain things here. Here's a man who's married and his wife has a serious injury or handicap and they cannot have sexual relations for the rest of their marriage. What do we say? We ultimately say Jesus is enough. And if we'll give ourselves to him with the help of a loving community, he can make up for that lack. And then last thing, I've asked gay men and women, can I embrace you as a fellow human being and love you and care for you as a neighboring citizen without endorsing or celebrating your sexuality? They've often told me, no, I'm a homophobe, I'm hateful, and we have to push through that. There's no hate in that. There's actually love behind that. But the thing has been so enmeshed in our society, it's up to us as God's people to put this in proper order, and our communication is so important. Join us next week for part three of the Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth, love well. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.